Hey, if you've got your Bibles, go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, that's the text we will be in this morning as we continue our series called Choices, uh, Decisions That Shape the Soul. Um, and if you did not bring a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. Page 495 will get you to uh, that particular story we're going to be looking at today. Um, a lot of you know that I used to work for United Parcel Service, UPS, did that for about nine years, and uh, how I got the job was through a friend, his name was Rust, uh, Rust helped me get that job, in fact, when I was hired, Rust was my boss right from the very beginning, and uh, I was working in the unload where they back up these trailers, and my job was to, to slide out these, uh, these packages, these parcels, uh, out of the trailer and uh, get, them sort, get them out to the sort where they would go in the package cars that deliver them uh, to your homes. Um, and I love working with Russ because Russ is a great leader, uh, one of those decisive leaders, one of those guys who almost knows what to do next before you even ask it. And one day I just finished unloading this trailer. Um, I popped out of the trailer to go ask Russ which one he wanted me to jump in next. And when I walked up to him and I asked him, well, you know, where do you want me to go next? Um, he, he paused. And, uh, and he pulled out a notebook and he started turning pages and reading notes and it really struck me as odd. Uh, and, and then it dawned on me that uh, this was not rust, this was an imposter, which might sound kind of ridiculous to you, but what you don't know is that rust has an identical twin. His name is Rick. Uh, and that was not rust at work that day, that was Rick. Uh, Rust had booked a, a long, a three-day weekend away to go golfing and asked his brother to go to work for him, who did not work for UPS, uh, who knew nothing about UPS, uh, but had a lot of notes that Rust had written down for him, and to which I looked at him and said, thanks, Rick, I mean, Rust, um, and kind of winked at him, but nobody knew, and that's probably a good thing, because that would have been probably not good for Rust. Um, but you, you, you know, maybe you've had that, uh, that situation where you, maybe you are a twin, Maybe you have a twin sister or a twin brother, or maybe you have twins, uh, or you know, maybe you've been in one of those situations where you, you walk up and you, and you think it's this one, but it's actually someone else, and you call them by the wrong name, because they're just, they're identical twins. They're, you, you really can't tell them apart. Parents can. They know the different personalities. Uh, they, they know sort of the idiosyncrasies, idiosyncrasies. Sometimes, you know, when they're younger, dress them in certain ways so you can remember who's who. Uh, but... Uh, but they're, twins, identical twins, are really difficult for most of us to be able to tell the difference between. Now, uh, in your study of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, you, you've probably heard this statement early on when Saul is rejected as king over Israel and uh, Samuel breaks the news to him and then God tells Samuel that he is going to search for a new king, a man after his own heart. Uh, literally what that means is that I'm going to go look for someone whose heart is you know, twin-like in nature, identical to mine, similar to my heart. And then we get to the book of Acts in the New Testament, Acts chapter 13, uh, Luke tells us that David, his legacy was indeed that he was a man after God's own heart, that there was such similarity between David's heart and God's heart. That they were, they were, there's this identical sort of twin-like nature to their hearts, which when you begin to think about David is, is rather, it, it, this is really rather perplexing, isn't it? Because if you know David's life, I mean, maybe, maybe this is all new to you as we get going through these stories that you'll go, wow, wait, this guy really, he really messed up. 
Um, I mean, this is, this is a guy who deceived, who lied, who manipulated, who misused his powers, uh, who stole someone else's wife, uh, who took the husband of this woman and sent him to the front lines so that he would be, uh, so he'd be killed in battle. So he, he in fact, commits murder. Um, this is a guy who is far from perfect. So how is it that God would say that David is a man after my own heart? Because that does not sound like God. So when you really dig into it, what, what you have to understand is that God is not talking about someone who is perfect like he is perfect. That that's not what God's saying here. He's not saying, David is just like me. He's so perfect, he never makes mistakes. No, that, that friends, that's not David. But what he is saying is, there are at the very core, there are these attributes of who David is. His heart is so similar to mine. It's, it's, it's twin-like in nature. It's so similar to mine that I would call him a man after my own heart. He and I share the same heart. Now, here's what I want to do this morning is I want to walk us through the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6. I want to make some observations. I want to make three observations about David's heart. And then what I'm going to do is, is, is once I walk through those, those observations, I'll spend most of my time on that, we'll connect them and I'll show them how they are similar, those, how David's heart is similar to God's heart, and then we'll do our own heart check to see who we are becoming. So that, that's the three observations, how they're similar, those observations are similar to God's heart, and, uh, and, and then we'll, we'll look at our own hearts. Uh, towards the end. So if you, if you got your Bibles here, uh, 2 Samuel 6, verse 1, I'm just going to jump in the story here, make my first observation. I'm only going to read uh, a couple verses uh, as I do that. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1, then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, three, uh, thir- 30,000 in all. He led them to Belah of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Let's hit the pause button right there. Uh, th- there's transition going on. Saul, who used to be king, is no longer king. He, he's died. He died in battle on Mount Gilboa. And uh, now is a transition between leaders. There's uh, a lot of uh, shakeup going on. There are people who are jockeying for position. But in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, David is now the king. Uh, he, he's gone from being fugitive to now being the ruler and, uh, and right from the very beginning of his leadership, he is going to set the tone of his leadership. You've probably seen this even uh, with leaders today. Like when a president is elected, there's often this, this, this uh, statement about you know, what, he ho- what he hopes to accomplish in the first 100 days. Uh, and, and so there's these, this, this key legislation, these key initiatives that they, they hope to pass. And what, what, what's happening here is we want to get some early wins that set the tone for where I want to lead. In fact, in business, uh, this, the same idea is mentioned. Robert Hargrove has written a book called Your First 100 Days as a New Executive. And the tagline is, bring a plan uh, for the first 100 days to your board or bring an early exit plan. No pressure. But it's this whole idea of you need to set the tone. You need to to get an early win that, that, that gives people a feel for your leadership. 
And so what David is doing here from the very beginning is he is going to, his, sort of like in his first 100 days, he is going to implement this, this initiative, um, you know, if you will, pass this legislation. He's going to do something that's going to set the tone for his leadership in Israel. And the very first thing that he will do as he's in Jerusalem is bring the Ark of the Covenant into the capital city, the Ark. Um, and let me just give you a little bit of background on the Ark of the Covenant because a lot of us are, the only thing we know about the Ark of the Covenant is what we learned from a movie that starred Harrison Ford. Um, and, and so let me just quickly, just kind of get a little background. The Ark was, was, was constructed in the wilderness. Uh, the, the people of Israel are they're gonna worship in a tabernacle and God puts a, spirit, a, a spiritual gift of craftsmanship on a guy named Bezalel. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 37. He builds this ark. The ark is a, basically it's a wood box that's covered with gold. Um, and uh, there's like gold rings in each corner and there's poles that go through the gold rings and that's how it's supposed to be transported. Uh, inside the ark are two uh, stone tablets of the covenant um, that, that, that Moses has worked on and put in there. There's also a jar of manna as a reminder that God provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness. And there's also Aaron's staff. The lid that goes on the top uh, has got two angels sort of facing each other with, with wings like this covering the top. And that top is actually referred to as the mercy seat. Because eventually the Ark of the Covenant will be in the temple and once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest will come in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to to cover the sins uh, of the people. Because in order for the people to keep on living before God, their sin debt must be be covered. Uh, Something, someone has to die. Uh, so that, that, the mercy seat is the, really the lid of the ark. And then when, it, when, when the children of Israel go into the promised land, you, you may remember that first battle being the battle of Jericho. And how they won that battle was by carrying the ark around the city. And on the last day, the priests or the Levites are carrying the ark and, and, and they blow horns and everyone shouts and the walls of Jericho come tumbling down and God gives the victory. Um, and, uh, and so God's presence, God, God's winning the battles for his people. And then there's a bit of a gap before you hear about the ark again. It, it actually, we pick it up again in 1 Samuel chapter 4. You may remember the story where Israel loses a battle, and they're trying to figure out why they, they lost the battle, and some, one of the elders decides that it's because they didn't have the ark with them. You know, they had it back at Jericho. If we take the ark, the, the symbol of God's presence with us into battle, then we'll win, and they treat the ark sort of like a, a lucky rabbit's foot. Take it into battle, and, and then, then we'll win. And so Hophni and Phinehas, uh, they're Eli's sons, they're corrupt sons, uh, carry the uh, or guide the ark into battle. Uh, Levites are carrying it, and they lose the battle. And the ark is captured by the Philistines. The Philistines get it. They take it to their temple because that's what you do when you conquer someone else's god. You, 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 they bring it into their temple. Their their deity is a guy named Dagon. In the morning, when they go back to their temple, Dagon has fallen. He's on his face. They set Dagon back up. The next morning they come in, Dagon is back down on his face, and the head of the statue is broken off, as well as the hands. So they're realizing, okay, this this ark is a problem. So they take the ark out of the temple, and then a plague breaks out in their city, and people start getting tumors. And so then they decide, let's move the ark from our city, and let's take it to another one of our cities. So they take it to another city, and a plague breaks out there, and a plague of tumors. 
So that city says, we're going to take it to another city. And that city says, no way, you're not bringing that ark here because the ark is a problem. We don't want that in our city. So what they do is they put it on an ox cart and they send it back to Israel. It arrives in a place called Beth Shemesh. And the people there are excited because the Ark of the Covenant has been recovered. It's restored. It's back. And they're celebrating. And they're, they're, they're sacrificing. And, and somebody pulls the lid off the Ark. And they look inside. And then God strikes 70 men dead. Ark is a bit of a problem. And so what happens is they put it in storage. They give it to a guy named Abinadab. He's in charge of it. His son Eleazar is actually in charge of it. And they put the Ark away. And it has been 20 years since we've heard about the ark until we get to 2 Samuel chapter 6. The ark is in storage. David is stepping into leadership. And please note, in 20 years, as Saul has reigned, there's never been a desire of Saul to bring the ark of the covenant into his capital city. But right from the very beginning, this reveals something about David's heart. At the very beginning of his leadership, what he does, one of his first initiatives is, I'm going to get the ark, the symbolism of the manifest presence of God, and I'm bringing it into my capital city. Why? Because I want my society, I want my culture shaped by the presence of God. I want God central, central in my nation, and I want my people to be shaped and to, to, to draw near to who God is. And, and, and this is really is the first observation we might make of David's heart. It's simply this. You are as close to God as you want to be. You are as close, uh, you are as, close as you want to be to God. Uh, this, this is David's heart. David loves the presence of God. He wants the ark in his capital city. You read the Psalms, and this will just sort of ooze out of his pores. Psalm 27. Oh, that I might live and dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 88. One day in your courts, Lord, is better than a thousand elsewhere. Psalm 42. My, as a deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you. David's heart is to be with his God. He loves the presence of God. He wants to be as close. He wants to spend as much time as he can in the presence of God. That's his heart. And some of you, some of us know what it's like to be so in love, to so want to be with somebody that, that we, we would love to spend every moment with them. Some of you, when you were when you were dating, you know this was this was, uh, or you're, you're married and, and you you love to be with, with 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 this person. When Trina and I were dating, um, you know we we would just we'd stay up late talking. I worked the graveyard shift at UPS, and we'd talk so late uh, during college and to the point where I had to, I had to go to work, and so I would I would I would go to work and, and miss sleep. We loved being we loved being with each other. Uh, that, that's sort of what, it, what David's heart is for God. And frankly, that's God's heart for us. And you can be as close as you want to God. It's really up to you. Saul wasn't so interested. David, David indeed was. He wanted to be close to God. But things get a little complex as this happens. Let's pick it up in verse 3. They placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart as it left the house, carrying the ark of God. 
Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and all the people were celebrating, of, of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nikon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. He named that place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah, as it is still called today. David was now afraid of the Lord, and he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? So David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. The ark goes back into storage. Now, this is one of those stories that maybe if you would maybe define yourself or call yourself someone who's a God seeker or someone who's you're not really following God, but you're starting, trying, to, trying to hear about me, learn about him. Uh, maybe someone invited you here today and you hear a story like this and you go, see, that's exactly why I can't believe in your God. He's just sort of this random, unpredictable God who when someone does something that's not that big of a deal, God just smites him. That, that's why I can't, I, I can't follow a, a God like that. Or maybe your reaction is something. There's actually a couple different reactions to this story. And uh, the first is that I, that's why I can't believe in God. This Bible is full of just crazy stories like that where God just unpredictably and randomly sort of just smites people. But uh, the other reactions are, are, are simply this. But you, you need to understand that there's, there's rules. And, and Uzzah broke the rules. And that's why he died. See, the ark, as it's to be transported, it's supposed to be, have these poles that go through the, the rings on the ark, and the Levites are supposed to carry uh, you know, the, the ark. I mean, they didn't use the poles. They put the ark on, the, on an ox cart. Levites weren't guiding it. Ahio and Uzzah were not Levites. Um, it's supposed to be covered so that the ark is not a spectacle. You're not supposed to touch it because we've seen the movie, and bad stuff happens when you touch it. We all know that. And, and they broke the rules. They, they, they did it all wrong, and that's why Uzzah died. Those are typically the two reactions. One is, that's why I can't believe in your God. And the other reaction is, you got you to gotta keep the rules, and if you keep the rules, then bad stuff, bad stuff won't happen. And both of them are wrong. Both of them are wrong. And the reason I can, I can say that, especially the one on, on the rules is, situation, is simply because well, then why didn't God strike the people dead when they put it on the ox cart? How did it get on the ox cart? Someone had to touch it, right? How? I mean, why didn't those guys die when, when, they, when they touched it? And then when it got put on the ox cart and was being transported the wrong way, it's supposed to be carried, why, why didn't God strike people dead then? And by the way, this is David's idea in the first place. Why isn't he dead? So it can't be that keep the rules and you'll be okay because they've been breaking the rules for quite some time. And so it can't be that Uzzah broke the rules. That's why, he would, that's why he, God's anger burned against him. It can't be that. In fact, 
What's dangerous about that philosophy in approaching God, this idea that if I do the right things, God blesses me. I mean, think about this. If I keep the rules, God will bless me. And if my life does indeed go well, then what that produces in me is this cold religious uh, religiosity. I become a cold religious person because I've earned it. I've done the right things. I deserve to have a pain-free, a smooth life. And then take a look, another step here is that well, if I obey the rules and if I do and, and say I am keeping the rules, but then life does not go well, that produces bitterness and disillusionment. Wait a minute, I thought if I keep the rules, life goes good. Or you know you're supposed to keep the rules, you don't keep them, and then now you're filled with shame and guilt. See, this is why this whole idea of I got to keep the rules and then God will bless me is the wrong idea. That's not why Uzzah was struck down. It's a symptom. It's the occasion that they broke the rules, but that's not what's going on here. Here's what I think is going on here. It's simply this. Uzzah thought that it was worse for the ark Contained the manifest presence of God. Uzzah thought it was worse for the ark to touch the ground than it was for it to touch him. Uzzah believed that that the ark touching ground that was dirty, that the ground was more dirty than he was. And so he helped God. And what Uzzah did is he underestimated the gap between himself and who God is. And he considered himself, I'm just going to help God. And instinctively, this was instinctive to his own understanding of who he was. He instinctively said, I'm just going to help God. And he steadies the ark. And God's anger burns towards him. Because what we're going to see here is that you can only draw near to God. and let. There has to be atonement. Your sin debt must be covered under the old covenant. So there has to be sacrifice. Now, David's going to learn this. There's going to be sacrifice. But even David here comes to the conclusion. He asks the question, how can I, how can I bring the ark into my city when stuff like this happens? He, he's confused. He's also not understanding the chasm between himself and God. So I, I, here's what I would say. Is just, the second observation is never underestimate the chasm between you and God. Now, we don't talk a lot about this in, in, in our day and age, the gap between us and God, and, and we tend to minimize it. Um, you, you may know the, the name Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was a Puritan preacher. He was instrumental in the Great Awakening in New England. In the Great Awakening, a, a lot of people were coming to Christ, but there was this one church in Massachusetts that wasn't responding uh, to, to, to the gospel, although it was happening all around them, and the pastor of that church invited Edwards to come and preach a sermon that he had preached in his own church called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, Edwards came and preached this sermon, and as he did, people were groaning in the service, and they were crying out, asking how they could be saved. What I want to do for us is read just a paragraph from, uh, from Edwards' sermon. But before I even do that, I just want to tell you this. You're not going to like it. In fact, it may offend you. It, it may tick you off. Bless you. It, it, it really may, it may upset you. 
But what I want you to understand, I want you to hear Edwards paint the picture of the giant chasm, the Grand Canyon-like gap between who we are and who God is. This is what Edwards says. He says, the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Still here? You, we don't hear that kind of preaching today. We, 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 don't, we, don't, we don't like to talk about just how huge the chasm is between us and God. We, we, we have a pretty good view of who we are and a pretty, per, pretty poor view of who God is. And what Edwards is saying is that there is a massive chasm between you and God and your life is in danger. And can I say that there's some of you perhaps in the room today, your life is in danger. Because there must be atonement. The sin debt must be covered. Your sin debt must be paid. And this is shocking. Even David can't understand it. But then he does his own research, apparently, because he goes back after three months and takes the ark out of storage and continues to bring it into Jerusalem. Look at how it's brought into Jerusalem. Verse 12, then King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. There's the atonement. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings, more atonement, and peace offerings to the Lord. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. Then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people returned to their homes. When David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today. 
shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. And David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. So Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. Last observation of David's heart is beware of maintaining your dignity. Now, now, let me help you understand what's going on here. You're as close to God as you want to be. And then I said, never underestimate the chasm between you, between you and God. And that, those sound like conflicting ideas. I thought you said I could be as close as I want to God. But there's this chasm, and it, it's a huge gap. And so how does that work? Well, there has to be atonement. Now, what happens is that David comes to understand that, that the sin debt must be covered through atonement, so he's sacrificing. And when he realizes that God is willing to be present with him in the city of David in Jerusalem, there is this spontaneous combustion of joy that takes place in his life. He can hardly contain it. He's leaping and he's dancing and the band is fired up and there's a parade and there's ticker tape parade and there's, there's all kinds of noise and he is excited beyond belief. He can't believe that God would be willing to draw near to him. And as he pulls around the corner and enters into his own city, his wife is looking out the window and sees him and eventually she will welcome him home by saying, oh, David, how kingly you were today. How respectable you were today. You behave like a common person. Kings don't do that. You behave like any common person who, who lives on the street. How undignified you were. And David's response is, well, here's the deal. God chose me over your dad. Uh, and then second, you think that's bad? I'm going to humiliate myself even more so I'll even be humiliated in my own eyes. Literally, what the language is saying there, you think that I was being common there or vulgar there? It literally means I will become even smaller. I will make myself even smaller than that. Why is David going crazy? Why is he saying, I'm not concerned about maintaining my dignity? I'll tell you why. Because he wants to be close to God. And now he's experienced the chasm. And now he's experiencing the joy of when that chasm is bridged through atonement and he can't contain himself. And friends, when we understand that Jesus Christ has paid our sin, sin debt and that atonement has, has covered the gap for us, that we, every once in a while, there should be this spontaneous combustion of joy that comes over us because at one moment, we were hanging over the fire of hell and now we've been rescued and now we are children of God and we have an inheritance in the kingdom of God forever and ever. And at some point in time, every once in a while, I'm not saying all the time, I think every once in a while, this sinks in for us and we just combust with joy. But look where Michael is. Not in the worship parade, in the window, saying, that's not respectable. And we do the same thing, hiding behind our religious facade and saying, how irreverent when someone actually is combusting with joy because they've understood that the grace of God has saved them. 
And it isn't just about worship. This isn't about, you know, we should leap and dance and cast the nets and you know, all that. That's not, that's, not what I'm, that's not what it's about. There should be those outbursts of joy. But what it means is when we follow God, we are willing to make ourselves small. Trina uh, gave me permission to share this story, but years ago, when we were in Hood River, um, we were in a church service, and there was an altar call at the end of the church service, and she heard uh, Holy Spirit prompt her to go forward for this altar call. Now, she's already a Christian, and so what's going on in her head is that, why would I go forward? This is for people who are giving their lives to Christ. If I go forward, people will think I, I'm not a Christian. This is kind of weird, and so she doesn't go forward. The next week, an, another sermon, and there's an altar call, and she hears this prompting from the Holy Spirit again. I want you to go forward. And so she's having this, this mental argument, debate with God. God, people will see me a certain way. I'm already a Christian, and if I go forward, that, that just doesn't make sense. And so finally, she, she obeys, and she goes forward, and she kneels. When she does, a woman gets out of her seat and comes up and kneels right beside Trina, and at the, at the altar, she whispers into Trina's ear, I so wanted to do this last week, but I didn't want to be the only one. And friends, how often does God prompt us to do things that make us feel small, and what we do is we maintain our dignity? We, we just think, oh, I can't do that because I'll get be perceived this way. And David's heart is, you think that was bad? Just wait till next week. <laughs> you, you, think, you think that was humiliating? And it's not about making a scene. It's, not, it's about this natural response to the grace of God because we want to be close to him and we understand that the atonement, the chasm has been gapped and we burst into delight because it's sinking in. A.W. Tozer has said this. Tozer uh, said, nothing bothers the devil more than a Christian delighting in God's presence. It's nothing. God invites us into his presence. So just... Three observation from David's heart here. You can be as close to God as you want to be. Never underestimate the chasm. But when you, under, when, you under, when you properly know what the chasm is and you understand atonement, that sin, the sin debt has been paid for you in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. He went to the cross to bridge that gap. And when you understand that, there's an outburst of joy. That's David's heart. Now quickly, this is how it's twin-like in nature to God's heart. God wants to be as close as possible to you. He wants to be in relationship. He wants a friendship restored with you. And he will not underestimate the chasm. He will not wink at sin. He will not let bygones be bygones. Say, ah, oh, it's okay, not a big deal. No, it is a big deal. But he sends his son to provide atonement. Jesus goes to the cross. He offers up his son. Jesus Christ, the son of God, is not worried about maintaining dignity. In fact, Philippians chapter two tells us that he left the glory of heaven behind and he humbled himself, made himself nothing, and took on flesh. This is the Jesus that washed people's feet. This is the Jesus who touched lepers. Your God wants to be as close as possible to you. He has made a way to bridge the chasm and he's made himself small to woo you to himself because of his great love for you. That's the heart of God. That's David's heart. That's why God would say, here's a man after my own heart. He's not saying here's a perfect man. And he's not saying to you and I, you have to be perfect before you can be with me. 
God doesn't say that. He says, here's my son. He's perfect. Take his sacrifice. As your sin debt payment. And come be in relationship with me. And understand it's new life. Today and forevermore. How's your heart, church? Do you want to be close? Do you understand the gap that was bridged for you in Christ? And if so, are there moments, maybe even on your own, where you're just overwhelmed with all that God has done and all that God is on your behalf? Let's pray together. Bow your heads, close your eyes. So Lord, this morning, thank you for all you've done. Thank you for your heart. And I just want to give opportunity this morning, maybe you're here today and you... You've never officially received Christ's payment on your behalf. And if if that's something you want to do today, I just want to lead you through a prayer. Put it in your own words. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Just pray it silently in your own heart. You could pray something like this. You could pray, God, I believe that you are alive and real. Jesus, I believe that you are God's son. And Jesus, I believe that you made payment for my sinfulness. Would you forgive me today? Would you wash and cleanse me of my sin? Would you be the leader of my life? Would you be my forgiver? I want to walk with you. Lord, thanks. Thanks. Thank you for all you've done. May you bless your name today, Lord. Amen.